and in the next hour as you get to hear, I know you get to hear from Ethan, I think one more time next hour or so. Uh, we want to be praying for you. We'll do that in just a minute. Um, I want to ask a sacrifice of you, church. I know your time is precious, so I try not to meddle with it as, as, as much as possible. I try to stay out of it, but today we have something very special. Uh, we have our monthly corporate prayer gathering. It's not here. It's going to be in Raleigh at Providence Baptist Church. One of our church plants, uh, Oaks Church Raleigh, is, is covenanting together today as a church family for the very first time, and we are going to pray for them. That's our job. That's what we're doing. So at 4.30, we need to meet at Providence Baptist Church to pray for them. I know that's a sacrifice for many of you that, that maybe not both of you, if you're a couple, could come or your family, but hopefully you can send somebody. And if you want to check with your small group and carpool down there, but we're to meet there at 4.30. Um, and our job is to be there to pray for them as they come together as a church family. So if you can make that, it's a special significance um, to our prayer time today. So um, I'd like to ask you to take a moment. Let's bow and, and pray now as we get ready to receive the word and, and pray for our, uh, our Dinawites as they finish up their weekend. Lord, we're, we're thankful um, that there is a next generation of followers of Jesus. And we pray this weekend that you would be equipping them and raising them up, um, that you would be drawing some to you for the very first time. They would enlist, they would believe, they would choose to follow. And we pray they'd be strengthened by <clears throat> your word now and by the message that Ethan is going to bring the next hour, and that all the conversations this weekend would continue to follow them throughout this week and, and throughout their lives, that this might be a weekend where they um, made significant decisions to follow you more fully. And Lord, may that mark us now. May, may as the word comes to us all, may we respond to it with gladness and faith, uh, believing that it is true even for us. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> when I teach, have taught on this passage in the, in the past, Matthew 25, starting verse 31, I always, I always think of this guy. You know who this is, right? It's the thinker, right? And, and whenever you look at the thinker, you always wonder, what, what is the thinker thinking about? And the, the most common suggestion is he's wondering who took his clothes. <laughs> but in fact, uh, we would suggest um, this morning that even though Rodin never said, as far as I know, <clears throat> what the thinker was thinking about, he left us a decisive clue because this work of art, even though now it stands alone, it was originally part of a larger work, um, larger work called The Gates of Hell. And it looked like this. And the thinker, based on the context, is contemplating an eternity of judgment separated from God. That's what the thinker is thinking about. And uh, it's not something that we want to think about. Death, judgment. Um, you know, only half of us, statistically, even have a will. Okay. And if you're under 40, about a quarter, a 
of people under 40 have a will. We don't like to think about death, let alone thinking about anything else. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, and beyond dying, we don't like to think about judgment. And we don't, like, we don't like to think about God as our judge. There's something uncomfortable about that, almost un-American about that. C.S. Lewis says that the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as, and, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And that is not what Jesus taught. Okay? That is decisively not what Jesus taught taught what he thought. Um, Jesus, all of his teaching, at, at the, these last few days of his life, all of his teaching has been leading up to this idea of a last great judgment. Jesus wants us to think deeply about the unthinkable so that we'll be ready for it. Live ready, Jesus has been saying. You don't know when that day of judgment is coming. Okay? It'll come, Jesus. Remember Jesus said, Matthew 24, it'll come on an ordinary day in the middle of the week when you're at work or maybe you're in class. And just like that, one will be taken in judgment and one will be left behind. So Jesus said, live ready. Be like those maidens who are waiting for the bridegroom and they had plenty of oil in their lamp. Live ready, be, be like the servant who was found faithful, who lived for his master's joy just so he could hear, well done, good and faithful servant, proclaimed over his life's work. You remember this, right? 2444. And you've memorized it, right? Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, Matthew 24. 44. And in our passage today, Jesus is following up on all this teaching about being ready for his return and really showing us why, why it is that we need to be so ready every day to live ready for his return. And he also shows us a surprising portrait of what that readiness looks like. And um, so let's look at 25, starting in verse 31. As Daniel read, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people, one from another as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And so with unmistakable clarity, Jesus taught, even promised that he would return. Okay? Make no mistake about it. Jesus thought he was coming back. He promised us that he would. He doesn't say, if the Son of Man comes in glory. No, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in glory. It's a, it's a certitude. It's a, it's a sure thing in Jesus' mind. Jesus is going to return. This is his unmistakable, repeated promise to us. 
When he comes, he comes this time not in humility but in glory with an entourage of all the angels and he sits on his throne as king and judge and before him are gathered all the nations. Okay. Everybody. Dale Bruner says it's like a cosmic Woodstock or Tiananmen Square. It is the most significant mass gathering of all time. That's what Jesus is describing. And at this gathering of all humanity, people are divided into two groups. The sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Jesus is drawing on the common practice of shepherds who had mixed herds in the day when they brought them. They were mixed during the day for grazing. When they brought them in at night, they would divide them up sheep and goats. To the right, those who are likened as sheep, is the place of blessing beyond our wildest dreams. And as we're going to see in a minute, to his left, those who are likened as goats, is a curse that exceeds our greatest disappointments and sorrows. Matthew Henry said, It is not said that he shall put the rich on his right hand and the poor on his left, the learned and the noble on his right hand, and the unlearned and despised on his left. But the godly on his right hand and the wicked on his left and all other divisions and subdivisions will be abolished, but the great distinction will remain forever and all persons' eternal state will be determined by it. Okay, that's what Jesus is teaching us about. And this is Jesus' point. On that day, the day that he has promised, his promised coming to judge all humanity, you really, really, really want to be among the sheep, okay? Be sheep. That's Jesus' point, okay? Don't be a goat. Be a sheep. And he says, so live ready. Judgment is coming. This is his prediction. This is his promise. In the next verse, he says that on that day, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so on the right hand, at the right hand of the king, King Jesus, is a place of unmistakable blessing by Jesus' Father. Okay? So this place, this is God's, this is a place prepared by God for those who believe. And when you sit there, you, you get an inheritance prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. This inheritance was ready for you. You get a kingdom. That's what Jesus says. Um, are you in line for an inheritance? Uh, maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you're in line for a whopper, like these two brothers, uh, Zalt and Geza Paladi from uh, Budapest, Hungary. They were so poor that they were reduced to living homeless in a cave outside of Budapest. And during the day, they would gather scrap they found in the street and sell it for pennies until their estranged mother uh, passed away and left them her fortune. And by the time they split it with their sister, these two homeless cave dwellers um, each, each got $2 billion with a B. Maybe that'll be you. Okay. Probably not. 
I doubt anyone here is in line to inherit uh, anything like that, let alone a kingdom from your relatives. Jesus says to those on his right that they will inherit a kingdom from the king of kings. That's, that's the inheritance that waits those who are at Jesus' right hand. Um, you really, really want to be amongst the sheep on that day. So, what makes sheep, sheep? That's important. If you're going to be sheep, if you're going to be among the sheep on that day, you need to know what makes sheep, sheep. And Jesus talks about that in the next couple of verses. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So, to be a sheep... All you have to do is feed and water, welcome and clothe, and visit Jesus. Right. How do you do what? How do you do that? Um, somehow the sheep did that, but they're as confused about it as you and me are. In the next verse, this is what they say. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Okay. They had no idea. No one can remember seeing Jesus hungry because, you know, Jesus always did the miracles that fed everybody who was hungry, right? Um, he was no stranger. Jesus was like a celebrity. Everybody knew Jesus, and he was always clothed, except for that whole awkward foot washing thing. But honestly, that hadn't even happened yet. That's the next day or so. The authorities, they'd followed him, they'd harassed him, they'd never arrested him. So when had they done these things to Jesus? Okay. What was Jesus talking about? The king explains. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So really broadly, Jesus is saying that how you treat those in need, that's how you treat me, Jesus says. I don't know exactly how that works. Some have suggested that Jesus has an actual presence with the poor. But at the very least, it shows how deeply Jesus cares for those who are in need. How, how closely he identifies with them and and these six acts of service, uh, they get physical needs like uh, food and clothing and social needs like a prison visit and hospitality to a stranger. Uh, obviously, these are representative, um, not an exhaustive list, right? It's not every way that you could care for those in need. So it's been suggested, for instance, that we could add, I was a fetus and you brought me to term. I was conceived and you gave me birth. But that would be... Those kinds of things could be added to this list. Great acts of charity and compassion for those who are in need. They're, they're simple, doable things. Jesus doesn't say, um, I was hungry and you got a PhD in economics and transformed the national economy. Okay? It's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, I, you know, I was in prison and you, you got an advanced degree in social work and revamped the entire prison system so that I was well cared for. It's not... Now, what he says, he doesn't even say, I was sick and you healed me, 
or I was in prison and you got me out. Not even that. No, it's, it's like just buying some homeless guy lunch, um, stopping by the roadside to help a stranded motorist, uh, sharing your kid's hand-me-downs with a single mom that lives in that single wide out in the country outside of Franklinton, driving over to Butner to visit an inmate on Sunday afternoons. By the way, North Wake has no prison or jail ministry. I don't know if you knew that. We don't have one. Maybe, maybe this morning God's prompting someone here to lead us to a place where Jesus would have us serve in that. Jesus says, love them, love me. It's what sheep do. One's at my right hand. The righteous. They love those in need, and in doing so, they love me, Jesus says. That's kind of the broad edge of the, of the target. But at the center of the bullseye, I think Jesus has something more defined in mind at the center of what these sheep are doing. You know, it's, it's interesting. He doesn't just say, as you did it to those in need, so you did it to me. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Um, the language that Jesus is using here is language that Jesus likes to use to describe his friends, his followers, his disciples. Um, not just the poor in general. Here's an example uh, from Matthew, back a couple chapters. Matthew 12, remember? Uh, Jesus gestures towards his disciples, and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is language that Jesus uses not just for those in need in general, as important as that is in scriptural teaching. Rather, Jesus has in mind here, I think specifically, caring for believers who are in need. Let me say it another way. Caring for those in the church in need. And again, this is not to exclude the validity of everything that scripture says about the importance of caring for the poor in general. The Bible teaches God's great concern and the need for us to be concerned for the poor without restriction all, all over the place in Scripture. Galatians, they said to Paul, Paul says, they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Clearly that's in place. But here I think Jesus is focusing on Caring for believers, and that helps us understand how it is that caring for the poor, for the least of these my brothers, marks you as a sheep. See, Jesus is not teaching here that if you care for the poor, you get in the kingdom. Okay. If that were the case, if you had a kind atheist neighbor, like I do, um, then then. Kind atheists get in because they care for the poor. And that's what Jesus says marks the people who get the kingdom, right? Um, yet, yet Scripture is explicit um, that, that faith in Christ is required to get in. A righteousness by works does not work. 
Uh, Ephesians, Paul's going to write, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Jesus is not setting up a way here for people apart from faith in him and his great redemptive work for them to get the kingdom. He's not doing that. But rather, um, if Jesus is talking about a love for believers in particular, a love for the church, then this would seem to be a fruit that's the unique manifestation of love for and faith in Jesus. Who else but other Christians would have such a commitment to suffering followers of Jesus, right? This is uniquely our concern, our compassion, our care for one another and for believers uh, that we don't even know that we care for. D.A. Carson kind of described it all this way. He said, good deeds done to Jesus' followers, even the least of them, are not only works of compassion and morality, but reflect where people stand in relation to the kingdom and to Jesus himself. Jesus identifies himself with the fate of his followers and makes compassion for them equivalent to compassion for himself. And that makes sense, much more sense, if the poor that he has in mind, the needy that he has in mind, are his own body, his own children, the ones whose his spirit indwells, that to love them is to love Jesus in some very direct, connected way. Love Jesus, love the church. Love the church, love Jesus. Despise and reject the church, despise and reject Jesus, as we're about to see. Because Jesus now turns and he says, um, let me skip that one, uh, In verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is not a parable. This is not a story that Jesus is telling that's kind of cryptic and hard to understand. He's making a prediction here. He's making a promise here. This is the destiny of goats. Apart from Christ into eternal fire, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Fire may well be a metaphor here for judgment. If that should prove to be the case, as Dale Bruner says, it is a metaphor for the awful the most awful future imaginable. This is Jesus' other point. You don't want to be a goat. You really, really, really don't want to be found among the goats on that day. What makes a goat a goat? Becomes a very, very important question. So in the next couple verses, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Again, while this this could have application for the broader poor, to be sure, Jesus' focus here, I think, continues to be on the treatment of the believing poor, on believers that are in need. So you turn a cold heart toward Christians in need, and that marks you as a goat. It reflects a lack of love for Christ himself. Love Christ, love his church. Love the church, love Christ. 
Reject and neglect the church, and it just reflects your true heart towards Christ. And the goats are shocked by this, just like the sheep were. And they answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Long ago, Blaise Pascal said that the elect will be ignorant of their virtues and the outcast of the greatness of their sins. See, they're like, if we knew it was you, Jesus, we would have helped. And Jesus is saying, no, you wouldn't. Because you didn't love my, my, my brothers when they were in need. Jesus is saying that how we love his, his bride, his body, his church is, is how we love him. And this truth, this, this connection between Jesus and his church um, is why when Paul was persecuting the church, you remember Paul was persecuting the church, uh, Jesus had already risen and gone off the scene when Paul was doing this. The risen Christ appeared to Paul on that Damascus road, though, and said this, which is not on my slides. It's from Acts 9. It says, Now as he went on his way, Paul approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had been persecuting Christians, right? And he said, Paul, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Persecute the church, persecute Jesus. Love the church, love Jesus. To persecute Jesus' followers is to persecute Jesus. And Paul himself would later write and describe how, how we are to be knit together, how God has so compose the body that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So it really raises this question. How connected are you to believers in Jesus? How deeply do you care for them? Do you have a connectedness to Christ's body, to your church family, such that you care about the people here, such that when they are in need, you feel it, and you are prompted to act on their behalf and care for them? This is why this teaching of Jesus, in part, is why it's so precarious to try to be a Christian and live disengaged from community outside of the church. Outside meaningful, caring community where the suffering of other believers matters little to you. Jesus tells us here, that's what goats do. That's where goats live. Now, if, if you're living there, 
if your heart is not intimately connected to God's people in a way that causes you to sacrificially act with compassion when they are in need, I've got no business saying that you're a goat. Okay. But you sure might be one. And you sure don't want to be one. The mark of a Christian, Jesus says, is that we love one another in visible ways. He says, by this, all people will, you know that my, will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how they know. That's what marks true, authentic followers of Jesus. Do you love the people in this room? Do you love the people in your small group? When you walk over to life change class, are you all about loving the people who are in that class with you? Or are you on the edges? And you don't really give a rip. Do you love the church? Not the building, not the meetings, the church, the folk, the peeps, the, the, the ones who are sitting next to you. Do you care? Jesus says, that's, that's the mark of the sheep. You know anyone here well enough that you'd know if they were in trouble, if they were the ones in need? And then Jesus closes with these sobering words. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And note how eternality, eternal, is used both of punishment and, and life. It's one of the strongest and most terrible arguments against just being annihilated when you die. Just That's it. That's the end. And, and one of the strongest arguments in favor of the awful reality of the eternality of hell that it just goes on and on and on and on and on. You don't want to be a goat. You really don't. You don't want anyone that you love and care about to be a goat. You really don't. See, the mark of a true follower, of a sheep that will inherit the kingdom, is a heart of love towards Christ's own brothers and sisters when they are in need. That's the mark. And if you are a believer and a follower in Jesus Christ, you need to cultivate that, feed that, stoke that, embrace that, you were bought by the blood of Christ for this. This is how you love him back. Jesus' teaching should spur us on to love and good deeds towards those in need, especially those in the household of faith, Paul would say in Galatians 6. But this morning, if, if you listen to this and you realize that that really, you, there's not much love and concern for the church on your part. You're just in and out, around the edges, do the meetings. It could be that you're at Jesus' left hand and not that is right. And, and you can't change hands just by saying, well then, guess I better sign up for study serve. This is not something that we can just do, more doing. The only, 
the only way to become this kind of person is to embrace the love of Christ for you as he died on the cross for your sins. Not his own. Didn't have any of his own. He was dying for you and for me. Great sinners like you and me. And to embrace that love such that it it causes us to want to love him for loving us and we love him then by loving those around us that he loves. Those outside of this room and inside, those outside the kingdom and inside, but especially, Jesus is saying, the least of these, his brothers. If you aren't sure that your faith in Christ has caused you to love Christ back and his people in this way, then you should think about it. You should sit down hard right at the front of the gates of hell and you should think about this. Jesus would want you to. That's why he gave this. This is his final teaching recorded in Matthew. This is it. This is is what he wanted ringing in his disciples' ears. That's why he gave this final teaching in Matthew, for you to think about it and to be ready. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Lord, we, we self-assess badly. And I guess that's why the goats were surprised. So I pray now that your spirit would be sweeping through this congregation and helping us assess truly. Do we bear the marks of a sheep? Will one day be at the right hand of Christ, inheriting the kingdom? Or do we bear the marks of those that is left who will be cast from his presence forever? Lord, right now, I pray that you'd just be making that clear, that you'd be granting assurance and affirmation, that you would be creating a nagging sense of doubt and need as only the Spirit can. Come, Spirit, do this for us. So that we might heed Jesus' warning. And be numbered of those blessed by his Father. With an inheritance laid aside for us before the foundation of the world. A kingdom. From the King of Kings. Jesus, have mercy on us now. As your word fits us and applies it to us. Grant faith this morning to those who are in need. We ask this in Christ, your great name. Amen.